today's scripture reading is from uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 22. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you are called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. And only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you all, not in the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you from the resurrection, excuse me, it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and it is God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Lemuel. So, you know, I don't like being caught unprepared. I don't know about you guys, but uh, it's not a pleasant experience for me. And I, every time it happens, I always try to learn from it and then try to prepare so that it will not happen again. So, for example, you know, my backpack that I carry around with me, it's got all kinds of stuff in there because it has been the accumulation of unpreparedness and then me making sure that I'm not going to have that happen again. So, for example, I have, like, Band-Aids. I have all kinds of medicines, essential medicines, my allergy medications if I get, like, really, like, uncontrollably attacked. Uh, I've got, um, like, Tums for my stomach. I've got uh, tools, all kinds of basic tools in there, uh, my, uh, my Swiss Army knife in case I need a knife. You know, you think of it, I've got it in there because I've somehow, at some point, I was caught unprepared, and I'm like, this is not going to happen again, and so I put it in my bag. So I've got all kinds of stuff. I even have tools, little special tools to fix my eyeglasses if they get a little loose or whatever, and I get to fix those because that happened to me before. So uh, yeah, that's, that's, it's not a good experience to be unprepared. But the United States was caught unprepared once uh, in the port of Pearl Harbor, on December 7th, 1941, if this is going to be a little history lesson here for us. This is an important date for us because on this date 
It was the date that we were pushed as a nation, the United States, into World War II. And before this time, before this day, we were sitting out of World War II thinking that we, we were not going to get into the world's business. We were just kind of hanging back. It really doesn't have anything to do with us. We're going to hang back here. It's not part of what we're in, involved with. And then Japan, surprise, attacked us and killed many of our military young men and women and civilians as well on that day, thousands. And uh, why do I bring this up? Because we were caught unprepared as a nation. Um, we had installed the latest technology of radar around that port. Uh, we had air um, fields around the port because that's where all our Navy was docking so to protect against attack. And then we also made the, well, the bay was shallow enough where we didn't think that airdrop torpedoes, torpedoes from airplanes could actually work in the bay because it was too shallow for those kind of things. So we, we were very safe from attack, we thought, but obviously we were wrong. But besides that, we thought we were not even part of the war at that point. So we weren't even expecting attack. Um, and that was our biggest weakness. We were prepared physically and militarily but we were unprepared mentally because we didn't even think we were part of the war. So why would we be attacked? And because of that, we interpreted all the clues that were, we would be attacked wrongly because we didn't think we were part of the war. So, you know, we just kind of justified, oh, yeah, that, you know, that means this or that. Nobody would attack us like that. Plus, Japan at that time was actually in the process of doing peace talks with the United States so, therefore, why would they attack us? They're trying to seek peace, but that's what they wanted us to think. And then they attacked us. Um, you know, in military strategy, surprise gives the attacker a huge advantage. And we just saw this on October 7th, right, when Hamas broke through the barriers and they attacked Israel in a surprise. And Israel, unprepared, left their citizens helpless and hopeless to attack. They were not prepared. For attack. And this same strategy, I bring this up because it applies to us as followers of Jesus and it is mentioned here in our text, right? Always be prepared. And without the right mindset of preparedness, we as well are open to attack as followers of the Lord, the living Lord Jesus Christ. You know, why do we, who are followers of Jesus, often struggle to express our faith publicly? in the everyday stuff of life, at work, at school, with our friends, or even with our unbelieving family members, why do we struggle? Well, there's a simple answer. <laughs> We're just unprepared, right? We're unprepared to express our faith in that one way or another. See, once we believe in and follow Jesus as Lord, that he is the living God who has redeemed us from sin, we become a target for attack. The evil one wants to destroy God's people once and for all. And at least he wants to make our witnesses for him weak and untrustworthy. If he can't destroy us and take us out, he's going to make us weak. And this letter of 1 Peter was written to the churches, remember, scattered through Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey. And they were facing much persecution and suffering because they were followers of Jesus. And so Peter wrote to encourage them to follow his example, to follow Jesus' example, because Jesus came to suffer and die to be a blessing to all the whole world, 
because he took on himself the punishment that we justly deserved for our sinfulness and our slavery to ourselves, our selfish thinking and our own sinfulness and rebellion against the living God. But Jesus came to suffer for us, to be that way of salvation for us. You know, he gave up himself for us. And, and so this applies to living in the midst of suffering in the sense in a, how we live is the expression of our faith. So let, look at verse 9. We are commanded there to repay evil with blessing. Just think of that. To repay evil with blessing, for this is what we're called to do in Christ. And then verse 10, we must keep our tongue from evil. Verse 11, we must turn from evil and do good and seek peace and pursue it. And then verse 14 says, if we suffer for doing what's right, we are blessed. Boy, that doesn't quite come into my mind when I'm suffering for doing what's right. I'm like, wow, I am so blessed. That's not the first thing that comes into my mind. No, but this is what the truth of God says. And Peter summarized all this kind of thinking back in chapter 2, verse 12, when he, he wrote there, live such good lives among the pagans, which are just unbelievers, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. But how are we ever to live in this way? How are we ever to live in this dark world like it, Peter is asking us and those then to live, to repay evil with blessing, to think of ourselves as blessed when we're, being suffered, when we're suffering for doing what is good. How? Well, the answer is in verses in 15 and 16 of our text. And that's what we're going to focus on today mainly, verse 15, 15 and 16. So let me read those again. And here's the answer. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Our readiness, our preparedness to respond confidently and joyfully to those who question us about why are we so hopeful in the midst of our suffering, our hardship, our turmoil in life, is the way we express our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's just simple as that, is that we express our faith in him by how we are confidently, joyfully respond to the people that ask us. So in verses 15 and 16, we see there's, there's these three real characteristics of those of us who revere Christ as Lord in the sense, and in this context of suffering. And so the first very key is where our faith is expressed through our action. What we do, our, our living, our good, our good deeds in a sense. Listen to verse 16 again that expresses this. Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So we've heard this, right? Actions speak loudly for our hearts. Our hearts are expressed by what we do. Our faith in Jesus is declared by our actions. Or we could say the lack of faith is also declared by our actions or our inaction for his name's sake. So actions speak very loud and people take notice of our actions. For example, 
Uh, nine years ago, in June of 2014, it was an amazing story in light of what's going on in the world today. A Palestinian family donated the heart of one of its members to an Israeli man, Eagle Cohen, an Israeli who faced certain death because his heart was too weak to continue on living, received a new heart from Mazen Julani, a Palestinian man, who was, as his family said, was shot and killed by Jewish settlers in an open-air cafe one day. And they decided to donate this heart to an Israeli man. Uh, and then this guy, uh, Mazen Giuliani, saved three other lives. His lungs, his liver, his kidney were also transplanted in three other Israelis. So he saved three other more Israelis. And at that point, CBS News and the nation of Israel just stopped and they took notice of this because it, went, it crossed the barriers of such hatred among these two groups of people. And as you can see today, that hatred is still there. See, our faith is demonstrated through our actions. What kind of faith do you have? Is it, would you say, an active faith or an inactive faith? Uh, James 2.17 addresses this idea of inactive faith. In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So there is no such thing as inactive faith. Um, we can just... Look at it this way. <laughs> faith without works is dead. So in a sense, if you're not active in your faith, then you really don't have faith. You are just fooling yourself. You may say, yeah, I follow Jesus, but if you look at your life and there's no active faith involved, then you're fooling yourself. You don't really have faith. Now, we can practice this act of faith in something called servant evangelism, which is spoken of in this book I've read by Steve Shogren, Conspiracy of Kindness. And this book is based on Romans 2, 4, which, is, which says the following, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, meaning the Lord's, tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? So the idea here is to serve people in the name of Jesus and just show kindness to people. That's it. Just be kind. You know, as followers of Jesus, we are to be kind. And this kindness then points people to Jesus because we're telling them why we're so kind to them. So, for example, have a free car wash is one of the examples given. And people come in, they drive in, and, you know, usually car washes are used for kids or people to raise money. And so people, they're appreciative. They say, so where, where do I, you know, how much can I give or whatever? And we say, no, we're not accepting donations. We're just doing this because Christ showed his kindness and goodness to us without strings attached. In a sense, he just did it out of his love, and so we as his followers are doing this for the community in this way. So we will not accept donations. And it's just showing God's love in a practical way. Our upcoming community Thanksgiving dinner that we'll be hosting is going to do the same thing. We're just giving a free dinner to the people in our area. And they come and they're just, why, why? And it's because we want to just show God's love to them in a practical way. And doing this creates all kinds of opportunities to talk to them about Jesus. Just point them because the kindness of God then leads them ultimately to their repentance, to their own repentance of their sin if they're open to that. You know, it's interesting. Jesus met unbelievers where they were. Uh, he realized what many Christians today seem to forget is that uh, and don't understand is that cultivators actually go out in the field to cultivate. 
And so there's been, according to one person's count, uh, that records the Gospels have 132 contacts that Jesus had with people. And only six of those contacts recorded are in the temple. And only four more recorded are in the synagogue setting. The other 122 are out in the mainstream of life with people doing whatever they're doing. It's not in these four walls that we have contact with those who are unbelievers. It's outside these four walls, right, that we are to be out there, the church scattered, sharing and pointing people to Jesus. We can only do so much here of encouraging each other in the gospel and those who come to us. But where do you go out there and do so? You know, according to the book, The Life of Francis Assisi, Francis, who was this Catholic monk, a famous Catholic monk years and years ago, um, invited this other young monk with him on a trip to go preach in the town. And so this young monk was honored because he was, Francis of Assisi was so popular. So he said, yeah, I'll come learn from you. So they went out. They went trekking into the town that one morning and they met hundreds of people and they went to the byways and the streets and they bumped into and talked to so many different people. They even went outside that city and to the suburbs and you know, did a lot of walking that day. And then at the end of the day, they, they walked home. But not even once had Francis addressed the crowd in like in a preaching context, like we might, you know, with a megaphone and hey, you know, kind of thing. No, he never did that. Um, Not once in the conversations they had with the people that they bumped into at the shops and on the road and whatever. He never shared the gospel with them in like a presentation or anything. No. And so greatly disappointed, this young monk said to Francis, he said, I thought we were going to town to preach. And Francis responded, my son, we We preached. We have preached. We were preaching while we were walking. We were seen by many, and our behavior was closely watched. And it is of no use to walk anywhere to preach unless we preach everywhere we walk. You know, there's a time in my life where I failed at this as a pastor. I was a young pastor. It was in Colorado, and I was ministering to a group of youth. And I had planned this awesome scavenger hunt right before Halloween. And so um, one of the items on the scavenger hunt was a, a jack-o'-lantern. You know, every group, had, every team had to get a whole list of things. And I was in one team because I had to drive. And, and then my team of youth were with me. And so we were getting stuff. Well, the time was almost out to get back to church and, you know, see who got the most stuff. Well, I had this un, uh, unfortunate idea that we didn't have time to go to anybody's house to ask permission to get the jack-o'-lantern and, you know, we bring it back. So I thought, you know, I told the kids, we'll just, we're almost to the church, we'll just stop at somebody's house and we can borrow one without telling them and then we'll just bring it back after and they probably will never even know, right? So I was condoning stealing someone's jack-o'-lantern and that's what I did. Me and this kid just quietly walked up to the house and we're like, oh, I don't see anybody, I'll get where it's good. And we ran back to the car and we bring it back to there. You know, and, and we laugh about that, but I think about how horrible an example is me as a pastor saying that I, let's, it's okay to steal you know, somebody's decoration just because we want to win. We want to win the, the scavenger hunt, right? And uh, it was just not out of my, that was bad behavior and I was not leading very well in that sense. Galatians 6.10 says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong in the family of believers. You see, we express our faith, or we could say our unbelief, through our actions. 
And as called to be followers of Jesus, we're supposed to express our faithfulness to him as Lord and Savior. But not only is faith expressed in our action, we see in our text here too that faith is expressed in our stories. You know, listen to verse 15, how it starts. It says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Well, how did that happen for you? How did you begin to revere Christ as Lord? How did you decide to become a follower of Jesus if you have? If you haven't, then you are still got that story to tell when that happens. But for those of us who have, that's our story. That's our rescue story. That's how Jesus rescued us. He rescued the whole world through his death and resurrection, but then how did he rescue Billy or, or Estelle or, or Andrew or, you know, or Jeff? How, what's the story of specifically what made me come to that realization? And this story of ours is an important way of expressing our faith to the others in our lives. Um, it's a very important tool of the Apostle Paul. If you look at the book of Acts, he shares, it's recorded there twice, his whole story of how he was persecuting Christians and arresting Christians, followers of Jesus, and then he was converted to be a Christian himself. Dramatic story. But in the book of Acts, it's recorded twice. You know, you think, wow, <laughs> I read this before. Chapters 22, chapters 26. is repeated again. It's very important, our story. How, and then we can also tell not only the story of how we decided, but how God has been working powerfully in our lives to transform us into his image through, from then until now. It's just part of our story. You know, uh, T.X. Huxley uh, was one, at one point a very famous uh, agnostic and he was with a group of men, friends of his, I guess, uh, at a, like a house party uh, over the weekend. So they, they slept there. And on Sunday morning, a bunch of the guys were getting ready to go worship and gather for worship at a local church. Well, he wasn't going to go because he's not a believer. But he asked one of, one of the men who was of good character and who he respected. And he asked him and he said, well, suppose you stay at home instead of going there and tell me why you're a Christian. Well, Huxley was known to be this like super big mind of, you know, uh, just super intelligence. And so this guy hesitated because he realized there's no way he's going to match wits with this guy and argue, you know, about Christ with him. And Huxley saw his hesitation. And so he said gently, he says, no, I, I don't want to argue with you. I just want you to tell me simply why Christ is important to you. And so this, this man did stay and he and when he finished sharing, there were tears in Huxley's eyes. And he just simply said, you know, I would give my right hand if I could only believe that. And all this man did was share his story. Share his story with Huxley. You know, May and I, when we visited our relatives in Iowa, my relatives from my family, one time I remember my uncle, who's not a follower of Christ, he simply asked me, I forgot the context of the conversation, but he just asked me out of the blue. He said, you know, I've always wondered, why, why did you change from engineering to go to be a pastor? I mean, what, what was the decision-making process there? You know, I don't see any connection. And I just shared that part of my story with him. It was able to, for me to express my faith right there. So not only is faith expressed in action and faith expressed through our stories of how we've been rescued by Christ, then we see in our text, too, that faith, our faith is expressed and defended with what we call apologetics. Now, apologetics is simply um, 
the expression or defense of our faith. It's, um, it's, it's a word that is like a formal defense. Like, uh, this is why I believe what I do. Uh, or dealing with uh, objections about our faith. And this comes from the second part of verse 15 in our text, where it says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. And this phrase there, to give an answer, in this original Greek is the word apologian. So that's where we get the word apologetics that we use. And it's used for this like formal defense in the court setting um, for specific charges against us. But in a more general sense, it's, it refers to just making an argument um, for ourselves on behalf of our own self in regards to misunderstanding or any criticism we receive. Because the fact is, brothers and sisters, once we come to Christ, we are on trial every day. The world knows if they know we are Christians and we're followers of Jesus, they're going to look at us. We're like being judged by them, by what we do, what we say, how we act, how we admit our faults, all those things. We're on trial. Howard Hendricks, who was a Christian author and seminary professor once, he put it this way, in the midst of a generation screaming for answers, Christians are stuttering. We're unprepared. You know, I experienced this... Um, I experienced the misunderstanding and damage that happens to remaining silent when I should have spoken up. And uh, it was when uh, May and I were learning to play the game Avalon. If some of you played Avalon. Uh, you know, everyone gets this secret identity when you begin the game. Uh, in this case, we had seven of us. Four of us were good people, and three of us are evil people. Okay, that's how the game plays, right? And, but it's secret identities. But the evil people begin knowing who each other are. Every, all the evil people know who the other evil people are, but the good people have no idea. <laughs> we don't know who's evil or who's good, for sure. And, so that, and then the game goes on, and you're trying to figure out who's evil, who's good. Well, I was good, but I kept silent because I was just learning how to play. So I didn't say anything the whole game. I didn't say I was good. I didn't say I was evil. And in the end, the evil, I, by keeping silent, I helped the evil people win the game. It was horrible. The evil people won. And, um, and what I realized is there that because I kept silent, and I didn't even stre stress, like, I'm good. I didn't say anything. Then my good, the other good people didn't know what to think of me. Am I good or am I evil? They had no idea. They had no evidence to even make a determination. And so we lost. And then the next game we played, because that one was pretty quick, we lost quickly, um, I, didn't, I did the same thing. I didn't say anything. And again, we lost to the evil people. Uh, yeah, and so it was horrible. But the point here, as I'm sharing this, is that if you and I live our lives in the same way, and we never declare that we're followers of Jesus to the people that we're in our sphere of influence, then they don't know what to make of us, especially in regards to Jesus. They could determine that, if Jesus was that unimportant to us, then why would it be important to them to listen if it ever came up in conversation? But, on the other hand, if we do speak up about Christ and our faith, then are we prepared to give the reason for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus, despite what's going on in our lives? We prepare for this by regularly knowing him through his word that he's revealed to us. 
especially with uh, the description of the value of God's word in 1 Timothy 3.16, which says all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And we study the scriptures because it teaches us how to live and how to respond to the world's questions. You know, May and I... um, well, before I get into that, there are actually two books that I want to recommend um, in this regards to apologetics. Uh, one is The Case for Faith, and the other is The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Uh, it, they are excellent in helping us prepare from the scriptures, and also research has been done on the, the reliability of the Bible. For example, here's just a few of the chapter titles dealing with common questions that are against Christianity that come up in conversation from The Case for Faith. Here's Here's the first one. Since evil uh, and suffering exist, a loving God cannot. And then the next one. God isn't worthy of worship if he kills innocent children. Next one. A loving God would never torture people in hell, meaning like torturing people for eternity. He just wouldn't do that if he was a loving God. And then another apologetic tool is logic. Um, For example... Often people who are skeptics of who Jesus is will just say, you know, Jesus was a good moral teacher. But that flies in the logic of non-contradiction. So I'm using an apologetic method here now, just logic. So follow me. If Jesus is simply a good moral teacher, then a good moral teacher means that this is a person of good character, right? He's trustworthy. He's not going to lie to you. He's, He's just, he's good, right? He's a good moral teacher. But let's say, for, for example, we, the good, this good person or this teacher is effective communicator, but we realize we can't trust him. So then, whatever they teach, we might say, wow, he's such a good speaker, but you just can't trust anything he says because <laughs> you know, he's not trustworthy. So we wouldn't refer to that kind of person as a good moral teacher. But in Jesus, in a sense, for him to be claimed to be a good moral teacher then a good moral teacher would never, ever make claims about themselves that they knew not, was not true because then they would be liars, right? Or maybe they're just lunatics. They think, <laughs> they think it's true, but it's not, right? But you would never refer to a person like that as a good moral teacher. So then if you say that Jesus is a good moral teacher only, then you look at what Jesus claimed about himself, right? What did Jesus claim? He claimed to be the only way to God. He claimed to be God. He claimed to be able to forgive sin himself and numerous other claims that would be inconsistent with the idea that he's just a good moral teacher because if you say that he's just a good moral teacher, then these claims must be false because if they're true, then he's much more than a good moral teacher. He's the living Lord who created the heavens and the earth. So when you use that kind of apologetics with somebody who says, yeah, I believe Jesus is a good moral teacher, then you can just kind of lead them to show that. So if you, if you simply mean that, how do you deal with the claims he made about himself? Oh, I don't believe that. So then you're saying he was a liar? Well, no. Well, then he must be a lunatic because he believed that about himself, but you're saying it's not true. So then they'll be like, no. Then you're, you realize that that's not a, a, a stance that they could hold without contradicting themselves. You see how I did that? That's, that's apologetics there. You know, my wife and I have had conversations with people they have very good questions about theology, uh, philosophy, about the Bible, or apparent contradictions in the Bible. 
And when we don't know the answers, it just pushes us to study. And, because we're curious and we're like, oh yeah, <laughs> what is the answer to that? I don't know. So we go and we study and find the answer if we can. And that pushes us to know the word of God even more and be more prepared the next time. It's like my bag. <laughs> next time I'm more prepared for when I am caught unprepared. Yeah, and in this process of answering these questions and expressing our faith, then we become more and more prepared to define our faith, to defend our faith, to express it through our actions, and then we grow spiritually in the process. You know, if we're a follower of Jesus as Lord and Savior, then let's not be caught unprepared. And use that unpreparedness, that feeling, then to become more prepared in the future. Um, so let's make every effort to prepare ourselves, to express our faith intentionally through our actions, through our story, and with the use of apologetics when we have opportunity. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the challenge that you have to us to always be prepared to give an answer to those who ask us the reason for the hope that we have in you when we're dealing with ugly things in life, with slander or injustice or sickness or cancer or family members who are, have had horrible things happen to them, whatever it may be, Lord, or persecuted for our faith in you. But we know, Lord, that you are our hope not whether or not this life is smooth and comfortable, but you are the only hope we have. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be beacons of this hope, this life that we have in you, Lord Jesus, and that we can point to others that are not convinced of who you are yet, that they would be pointed to you as they look to us for the answers of life and that we can show them the truth of your word as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.